Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to The Political Party. This is episode seven, featuring the former Conservative MP and now media commentator and journalist, pundit Matthew Paris, uh, one of the true gentlemen of British politics. And um, he was on fine form that evening at the British Library. Absolutely top bloke. He's led a very colourful career, including working for Margaret Thatcher before he was an MP. Talked very uh, interestingly about what it takes to be a rebel, um, which is something highly relevant at the moment, of course, given the issues that David Cameron's had and given the way Parliament has been in the last few years. So he sheds uh, genuine insight on the mind of a backbench MP. He is, of course, uh, as dignified, particularly when talking about Tony Blair, who's a man he really doesn't like. I won't ruin it, but listen to him... uh, on that bit uh, in particular. The show was a slightly different format, so we'll start straight off uh, with the interview. This is me talking to Matthew Paris. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to start by, seeing as we're part of a propaganda exhibition, Mm. and I I deliberately asked you to come and do this because I thought your experience, both as a parliamentarian and as someone who's worked in the media, is unique for understanding both politics as propaganda and, and media as propaganda. In terms of this modern era, so let's say the sort of post-Thatcher, well, including Thatcher, who do you think has been the worst offender in trying to manipulate the public, politicians or the media? It's pretty even. It's pretty even, <laughs> even draw. I, I, I think the world of politics has got much more propaganda-wise, more manipulation-wise. It actually started in the last years of Mrs Thatcher, Bernard Ingham, uh, was very media savvy. Uh, then Tony Blair really took took the ball and and ran with it. And now, when you try to make your case uh, in in politics or make make the case that you're an effective politician, it's always in terms of how good you are at the media, how good you are at propaganda, how good you are at getting a message across. Never any longer in terms of is the message right? What's the substance of the message? And I I, I find it tiring. But is, is that necessarily a bad thing? You know, I, I've wrestled yeah, with this idea it myself. Is. <laughs> it's a bad <laughs> thing. <laughs> but to be able to communicate quickly what you're talking about is, is a necessary skill, but not only a necessary skill, but a desirable one, isn't it? You know, if people waffle on, you can't quite understand where they're coming from. It, it sort of makes for bad debate and bad understanding. Well, I'm a propagandist because I, I'm, I'm a columnist and my, my, whole, my whole job is, is getting ideas and arguments across and popularising ideas. And arguments, and I, so I mistrust people like me. I mistrust people. <laughs> I mistrust people with with um, with silver tongues. I mistrust people who are good at fine writing. I mistrust people who who can get just the right image to to uh, to get a, an idea across. I know them. I'm, I'm I'm one of them. A lot of them are my friends. They're not always bad people, but <laughs> you you have to distinguish uh, between the way the idea is got across and and the strength of the idea. I, that I, you, you'll understand this, you do understand this, Matt, so much more than a lot of people do. Politicians are not really very different from other people, and politics is not so different uh, from the world that we know outside. 
politics. And we all know, you all know, people who are really sound, whose ideas are good and strong, who just can't express their ideas well, who are just not persuasive, who don't, don't, uh, don't, don't deliver a, a, good, a good patter. In, in politics, the patter is everything, and I think that works to the disadvantage of, of, of those who are not good at it. Would you, would you count Ed Miliband amongst that group of people? I, I, <laughs> I'm longing to get you to do your Ed Miliband. <laughs> <laughs> I wish you would. I don't think Ed Miliband is all that bad. I'm one of a dwindling band of people. It's expanded a little in the last week. Who thinks that Ed Miliband won't set the Thames on fire? But he's basically a, a decent man. He's a highly intelligent person. His, his instincts are cautious. This week, again, a little bit of an ex- exception. Uh, and I, I can't imagine Ed Miliband ever doing anything really stupid or, or dishonourable. So uh, I'm, I'm a kind of uh, lukewarm fan. <laughs> we, uh, we, we could do a lot worse. I just wonder, in terms of political communication, because everything now gets... Spin yeah. was the, the watchword of the Blair years. Yeah. It was be- before Iraq, probably the most damaging charge that was laid yeah. at Tony Blair's door was his over-reliance on spin doctors and special advisors and all the rest of it. But as someone who worked for the party in that period... It's very hard to campaign without only showing one side. I mean, it, propaganda is, is understandable in many terms, isn't it? I mean, you can't put a leaflet out saying the Tories will cut the local hospital, um, but by the way, we reduce the funding a little bit, but that's not really the point. You know, mm. it's, it's difficult to not, when you're in politics, communicate in that way. I mean, the public almost expects it. Of course. But again, this is no different from, from our, our own lives. So you, you never get a an idea or an argument or even a story across without a little bit of colourfulness, a little bit of exaggeration, uh, uh, cutting the corners occasionally and selecting the evidence that suit your, suits your case and, and, and ignoring the evidence that doesn't suit your case. It's, it's, what, it's what we all do. But I, I do think that the world of politics needs to have a little bit of a sense of shame, a little bit of a sense of what would be going too far, and I just think it's gone a bit too far in recent decades. Do you think the public is savvy enough to smell yes. propaganda and to see through it. Yes, they absolutely are. Uh, it's, I, I think the propaganda war is a little bit like ordinary wars, where one side develops a, a weapon, which is really clever, and gets through the energy, en, en, enemy line of defences, the enemy basically being the public. And so it gets through their defences, and you know, they, 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 they buy whatever it is you're trying to tell them. After a while, the public gets savvy to that way of talking. They realise it's all spin. They realise it's PR. Then you think of a new kind of PR. Quite a good example of that, actually, is, um, is Kenneth Clark. Now, Kenneth Clark is often sold and sells himself as a man who do- is completely careless of spin, propaganda, PR, all that kind of thing, no polish, doesn't care what he says, tells it like it is. Not so. Kenneth Clark has noticed that being pretending to be like that is much more popular with the public than sounding all smooth and glib, as Tony Blair sometimes does, and as quite a few Tory politicians sometimes do. I believe that he actually scuffs his hush puppies and <laughs> ruffles his hair before he comes into the room. It's just that non, non-PR, non-spin, non-glib is the new glib, the new PR, the new spin. So then, so what, is Ed Miliband deliberately bad? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> who are the people that you would say are slightly unvarnished? Miliband, I suppose, is authentically I weird. think so. I, something... <laughs> No, something in Ed Miliband does actually milit- react against being groomed and told how to do things and how to look and, and how to talk. You can tell he doesn't like it. The same was true of, of Gordon Brown. I wouldn't say many good things about Gordon Brown, but one good thing I would say about him was that he absolutely hated the whole PR thing and he just looked miserable when he was trying to do things according to how a spin doctor had told him to do them. That's a sign of honesty in a person. 
So do you think there's, a, there's an appetite now for the public to sort of have less... Been, but I mean, how, do, how would you change the world now? How would you change the way that politics is done and make it more honest and more relaxed? You, because you're, you're, you're a good person to do that. Your trade, your profession is the right one to do it. You mock them. You just keep mocking them. You keep <laughs> taking the mickey out of them. Uh, you laugh at them. I write columns listing the, the particular new phrases that politicians are now using, how they always say challenge when they mean problem, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> we just keep m- mocking them mercilessly. That's, that's the way to deal with it. I sort of feel, and I'm partly still entrenched in this view, that actually it was the media that started it. That actually in the old days, people used to go to town hall meetings and listen to <coughs> politi- politicians, maybe waffle on a bit, but they were interested in what was happening in their community, as they still are, and happening in the nation as a whole. They were fascinated as to why you, know, you would vote for different parties. And then, in my view, the sort of media came along, sensationalised it all, and attacked people like Ed Miliband and Neil Kinnock and Gordon Brown uh, and, to some extent, William Hague, those that weren't normal politicians and made fun figures out of them and demonised them and wouldn't give a platform for a long speech anymore, would only carry your speech if you could sum it up in a soundbite. Yeah, well, there's a lot of truth in that, but the medium is, is so to speak, the... Uh the board, the slate on which it's all, all written. So politicians uh, look to the media and try to think how they can wind the media around their little fingers. But the media equally has a symbiotic relationship with politicians. We like the politicians who give us those, those, those glib uh, sound bites. We, we, we like the, what was it that Tony Blair said, eye-catching initiatives with which I am personally associated. We love that about <laughs> Tony Blair. We, we played his game, they played our game. But it's not new. Uh, I've just finished reading a really good biography, if you get the chance. I think it's just out now by Douglas Hurd, a biography of Disraeli. And Disraeli was the original spinner. He was as slick as anybody has ever been in modern politics. And by a kind of magic, he entranced Victorian audiences, though he was completely unprincipled, never, never stuck to, to one policy, Didn't went to sleep when the Cabinet were discussing serious <laughs> policy of any kind. But he just had the media wrapped around his little fingers. The two Prime Ministers in my lifetime, and probably since the war, that have excelled at their manipulation of the media were Margaret Thatcher and, and Tony Blair. You worked for Margaret Thatcher for, for many years as a correspondent secretary. And when she died, I, I read the columns and, and sort of saw your reaction to it. And you spoke about her in a way that a lot of people didn't speak about, in sort of quite a warm and fond way. Mm. Was there a side to her privately that was different to her public face? No. No, there, no, there really wasn't. <laughs> no. I mean, there are, there are so many politicians of whom it would be fair to say, I wish, I wish you knew them privately, you know, they, they, you'd see the nice, warm, caring side. They're so different. But actually, the Margaret Thatcher that you saw on television was more or less the Margaret Thatcher Dennis would have got at breakfast. <laughs> uh, she, she, did, she didn't have different sides. She wasn't interested in small talk. She wasn't a warm person. She wasn't actually very interested in family. She was devoted to her, her husband. Apart from that, politics was everything. And th- there were... What you never got with Margaret Thatcher, which I, at the same time found difficult about her and also rather admire was you never got the sort of wink that you get from so many politicians. Chris Patton, man I admire, like very much, Tony Blair, um, David Cameron, all of them. You'll be having a chat with them and you'll, they'll say something and then they'll give you not necessarily a physical wink but the, it, it, implicit in what they're saying is, look, you know I've got to say this, I know I've got to say this, 
But we both know that it's actually much more complicated than that. You've never got that from Margaret Thatcher. You've just got it kind of straight between the eyes uh, with absolutely no sense of her giving you one version but letting you know that there was a different version. She was, she was straight down the middle. In terms of your working relationship with her, was she a hmm. good boss? Yeah, she was a wonderful boss. She was the most appalling person to work with. <laughs> I, I, I was never a colleague. I was just below stairs. I was her clerk. She was one of those people that never takes it out by kicking the cat, and I, I was the cat. She was, uh, uh, she was always in before us. She always left after we left work. Uh, she, she worked harder than any of us. She took an interest in all our work. She took an interest in our, our families and all the rest. I don't think she was really interested in our families, but she knew that a good employer remembers that his correspondent secretary's father has had a heart attack and you ask him how his father is. She was really, she was lovely in that way. So you will find that anyone that ever worked for Margaret Thatcher adores her, anyone, anyone. There'll be no one who ever worked for her who doesn't. But you'll find that most people who work with her have very, very mixed feelings uh, uh, <laughs> indeed. Maybe it's slightly naive of me to, to maybe think that you wouldn't be a, a, a Thatcherite. I mean, uh, ideologically, would you say that you were? I was sort of half persuaded by the, by the end. I started out as a very left-wing uh, conservative and I, I started out thinking that, that she was a bit heartless, a bit cruel in the way she went about things, that it would be much better if the Conservative Party could at least show that it cared and uh, talk to people a little bit more and try and explain a little bit more and just occasionally don't, uh, don't kick your opponent when your opponent is down. But I came to the conclusion that such, was the, such were the forces that were arrayed against her, that her instinct... Well, Ian Gow, who was assassinated, put it like this. Uh, I was expressing just that point of view that I just have to you to him. And he said, understand this about the lady. He said, uh, she believes that when you're hunting crocodiles... If you manage to get the crocodile onto a sandy bank, you stick the knife in, you don't help it back into the <laughs> deep water. And I, when I saw the forces arrayed against her, I came to the conclusion in the end that you have to be a fighter or you, you just perish in politics, and that's probably why I didn't stick with it. She had uh, a remarkable relationship with certain elements of the press and elements of Fleet Street, particularly The Sun and The Times you now work for, The Telegraph, The Mail, the Exp- were just all full square behind her, and it felt like the weight of print opinion was was absolutely with Thatcher. What was her secret to, to forging such strong links with these propagandists? She didn't go out of her way to cultivate uh, the media. She, she did give Larry Lamb, the editor of The Sun, a knighthood, which I think he should not have accepted. I don't think, I don't think any journalist should accept <laughs> honours. Mm. But uh, on the whole, uh, she, she didn't flatter them. She didn't invite them all round for, for tea. But I suppose that her agenda was very much the agenda of a lot of those newspapers. So they saw in her someone who was promoting things they, they believed in. It would be true of Rupert Murdoch, the proprietor of my newspaper, but true of The Telegraph and The Daily Mail too. So, yeah, I think they just thought that she was on their side, and in a way she was. How influential do you think Rupert Murdoch is on the British public? <coughs> not, not as influential as, as people think. I don't think newspapers are as influential as newspapers think. I think, I think newspapers echo, and in, in echoing, amplify what they pick up from their, their readership. I've tried sometimes to write columns that simply went completely against the grain of what I knew my readers thought. You just... It's spitting into the wind. You just, you just don't get anywhere. You don't even get 
a response. You see people open the article, read a few paragraphs, it's not what they want to read, and they, and they move on. So I think a, a, a shrewd newspaper proprietor or editor gets the sense of what the readership wants, what the readership wants to hear, and then gives it to them, and gives it to them in spade and, uh, spades and, and lays it on with a, a trowel. But woe betide the proprietor or editor who thinks that he can bring the public round to a point of view for which the public don't start with quite a lot of, of sympathy. A friend of mine got a job as the diarist, a diarist, for the Daily Mail and told me that on his first day at the Daily Mail, his diary editor said to him, what do you got to remember, Tom, as long as you write for the Daily Mail, is what the Daily Mail wants is something that makes our readers feel a little bit angrier with somebody or a little bit more afraid of somebody than they were before. <laughs> so, dispiriting, but... Uh, <laughs> I mean, the Daily Mail in particular yeah. um, is, a, is a phenomenal newspaper that I would never ban, but you, you, in terms of its tone towards women, ethnic minorities, immigrants, single parents, has been so ferocious that you think it may well be giving the public or an element of the public what it wants, but it also then reinforces, doesn't it? And actually, because something's in print, somehow makes it special that people will say, well, I read it in a newspaper, and even though that sounds hysterical to say that as a defence for any argument these days, in people's minds, actually, there's something about seeing something in black and white that gives it authority. I don't think you're right on, on, about women. Uh, the Daily Mail was the first British mass newspaper to notice that women read newspapers and to design uh, itself specifically for women readers. Uh, female, as it was called, was one of the very first uh, such columns. But it isn't just the, the women's only parts of the Daily Mail, but the whole newspaper has always been designed with women readers just as much as male readers in mind. And you'll very often find, I find in, in families, where the man will say, oh, I never touch the Daily Mail, and the, the woman will say, I know I shouldn't, but it's, um, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a forbidden pleasure, but I can't resist it. I, 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 I don't think it's an unsympathetic, unsympathetic paper towards women. Yes, I suppose by reinforcing elements in the way people think that we don't like, it's, it's doing a bad thing. On the other hand, it's not patronising its readers, um, it's understanding its readers and it's trying to give its readers what they want. And I, I personally, you know, I'll rail with the best of you against the Daily Mail and then I'll see a Daily Mail and a Financial Times on the table and I'll pick up the Daily Mail and I'll, <laughs> I'll, start, I'll start reading those, those articles, you know, how cancer... Um, can come from eating too many peanuts or, or, or whatever. Or peanuts or, cure yes, cancer. Yeah, or peanut, yes, or both, <laughs> on different pages. I, I, it's, a, it's a bloody good product. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's very good. Um, so you went to Parliament in 1979, Margaret Thatcher's first election. Um, and you left in 1986, so you'd done two terms as an MP. Not quite. I, I caused a by-election. I went between terms. Yeah. But, yeah, I'd done seven years. What, firstly, what was it that attracted you to politics? And then after that, I'll ask you why you left. Um, I, think, I think any politic, almost any politician, an element of what attracts them to politics is the desire to be noticed. Um, I, I think there is a certain amount of attention-seeking, which is an almost inseparable part of what I would call the political character. Um, you and I are not entirely free from the same... <laughs> Uh, the same thing, and I'm sure that that's, that's what drew me partly into politics. The other thing that drew me into politics was dislike 
of, of, uh, of socialism. Uh, I, I was at university in Britain in the late 1970s, when, in the, sorry, the late 1960s, early 1970s, when everything seemed to be going to hell in a handcart and all my fellow undergraduates at university wanted to be social workers and everybody seemed to think that the way forward was by collective solutions to individual or social problems and I reacted very strongly against it and I joined the Conservative Party not out of liking the Conservative Party but out of a dislike of collectivism as a, an ideology. So you, you stood for part... I mean, how easy was it to get selected up in Derbyshire? Um, I, I wouldn't say I cheated. But, um, <laughs> I, I Unite re- didn't stitch it up for you, did they, Matthew? No. <laughs> I rescued a drowning dog from the River Thames <laughs> in 1978. I, I, the dog was drowning. Its little boy and girl owner had taken it out for a, a, a walk before bed. It had clambered over the stone parapet, parapet just in front of what's now called County Hall. Um, it had uh, fallen in, it, it, and it was drowning. It was the 28th of February, 1978. The tide was high. Um, the wind was high, the waves were high, and it, the river was very, very cold. I had no idea how cold an English river is in winter, but I because I'm born and brought up in Africa, but I just jumped in, rescued the dog. Mrs Thatcher presented me with an award for bravery from the RSPCA on Westminster Bridge. The dog tried to mate with her leg while she was uh, doing it. The press were so much more respectful in those days. Only the top half of Mrs Thatcher appeared in the Sunday Express, but the... Uh, the caption, hold on, Jason, spoke more than the readers of the <laughs> Sunday Express could possibly know. And um, when West Derbyshire were looking for a candidate, they, they, they had about 500 applicants. It's one of the safest conservative seats in Britain. And the lady chairman of their selection panel um, said, well, now, ladies and gentlemen, we, we've, we've, we've shortlisted. We want to short, shortlist 12. We've decided on 11. We just can't decide on the 12th. I propose this young man. He's never done any never been a parliamentary candidate before. He's only 29, um, but he's got an interesting job, even if he's only a clerk in the leader's office. And he's rescued a dog, and I love dogs, <laughs> and I'd like to shake his hand. And that is the only reason I was wow. uh, shortlisted. Did you I, find... I beat Michael Howard for that, uh, that, wow. that seat. Yeah. How did you find campaigning in that election? Were you very much a sort of hands-on candidate going door-to-door, or was oh, it yes. not required in that? Yeah, in those days, that we're talking about 1979, in those days, door-to-door campaigning... Uh, leafleting, there were 80 villages in my constituency, 40 of which had a Conservative association, and I made a speech in all 40 of those villages, and we had a wonderful thing in those days, which has now completely disappeared. We had hustings on the eve of poll in Worksworth Town Hall when all three candidates for all three parties uh, would come and would speak one after the other, and so you had, amongst your audience, supporters of all three parties, and they'd all be, um, you know, Labour and Liberals booing me and ch- Conservatives cheering me, and my supporters would boo Labour and the Liberals, and it was a, it was a great Victorian kind of evening, and uh, I, I loved it. Did you enjoy parliamentary life? No, not very much, no. I wasn't very good at it. Uh, I'm a shambolic character. I'm not a good team player, and... I, I, I must not dress this up as, as conscience or principle... None of us is without conscience or principle, and occasionally I was against what the party were doing. But I think I just didn't really understand that a party is an army and politics is a battle and your whips need to rely on you and you have to turn up and you can't just suddenly decide there's something you don't like about a bit of legislation and and vote against it without telling anybody. And I was not disliked, but I think the whips decided that I wasn't the sort of foot soldier that that was needed in politics. So um, I never got anywhere. 
Did you rebel much on, on votes? No, no more than um, lots of other people. But you know, I should have noticed which things to rebel on. I should have rebelled as part of a gang of people rebelling. I should have rebelled on things that the party was going to regret doing. And then I would have been um, rewarded later on. Uh, most good parliamentarians, most successful parliamentarians, have not been the most obedient ones. They have had uh, quite famous rebellions at some point in their career. It's knowing when to rebel, with whom to rebel, and when not to rebel rather than simply learning a, a kind of dog-like obedience that will get you on in politics. It seems odd to me that, you, because you're so popular, that actually you, you didn't stick it out and try and hold ministerial office. Did you ever am, have ambitions to be a minister or well, even yes. to be prime minister? No, no I, on, I, only, I, I only went into politics to be prime minister. <laughs> um, after a year or two, I kind of lowered my sights <laughs> and thought I would be home secretary or, or foreign secretary, honestly. And I would say that in the present House of Commons... At least two-thirds of those who have entered it have entertained secret hopes that they won't have confessed to many people, secret hopes that they would, they would be Prime Minister. And I, I cer- certainly did, and I wanted to be a minister, and I wasn't getting anywhere. I mean, being gay didn't help, um, but uh, it didn't stop quite a few of my, my Tory colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> Did the Whips Office ever try and entice you with, or, or did Margaret Thatcher ever try and entice you and say, look, Matthew, you know, maybe if there's another reshuffle, I might give you a junior ministerial post? Or there, was there ever any carrot off? Oh, yeah. In retrospect, um, I, I think that I should have realised that Margaret Thatcher had decided that there was... She would look at me with her head slightly to one side and, and an expression that said, there's something not quite wrong about... <laughs> not quite right about this boy. Something, something wrong with him. Um, and it wasn't an unaffectionate look but it wasn't a look that says, I'm going to promote you in the next year or two. Um, but the whips would say to me, oh, you know, you're doing really well. Just, just, just play your cards right. And, you know, the Prime Minister has noticed you. That's what whips always say. Um, but no, no. I, I, transport became my great and abiding interest and still is my great interest in, in policy. But um, I got nowhere. And I mustn't pretend that it was a matter of uh, conscience or courage or, or principle or anything. Um, some... Some people's faces fit and, and some don't. And Mar- one of the reasons Margaret Thatcher especially distrusted me was that I'd written a rude letter to a council tenant on Mrs Thatcher's headed notepaper when I worked for her as leader of the opposition. Uh, my, my, my job was answering her letters from the general public. I got an unpleasant letter from a lady in Gravesend who didn't like the fact that the people next door had a child with Down syndrome that was noisy... I didn't like the fact that there were Asians living on her council estate. Why should she live on a council estate where there were also Asians living? Didn't like a lot of things, and I didn't like her. And uh, You know, we all write letters in our heads or compose emails, but we shouldn't press the send button. Um, I should have torn that letter up the next morning, but the letter said she should be grateful to have a roof over her head, provided at the ratepayers' expense. Yours sincerely, Matthew Paris, private office of the leader of the opposition. <laughs> the Daily Mail got hold of it. The Labour Party Party printed three million leaflets of the front page of the Daily Mail and they were put through the door of every council seat in every every council house in every marginal constituency in Britain. So I think Mrs Thatcher decided I was (laughs) (laughs) What about the... You know, lots written about the social side of Parliament and how it's different now. And uh, I've spoken to a lot of MPs and Tony Blair mentions it in his autobiography that when he was first an MP, actually it was quite common to socialise with members of other parties and Parliament was actually quite a, a sociable place and that that's changed now. Oddly, it seems that politics then was, was more tribal and more fiery, yet MPs from other parties got on a little bit better. And now in this era where arguably the parties are closer together, actually, 
they behave more tribally behind closed doors. Did, yeah. did you have good friends in the Labour Party? A few, yes, and, and, and amongst the Liberals. Uh, but it was, it was pretty tribal even then. Friendships were tribal, but there was, there was quite, a, quite a good kind of rugby club feeling about the place, and that's partly because there were fewer women and the place was not so friendly to women. And it's the arrival of family-friendly hours and uh, everyone goes home um, at 10 o'clock at night at the very latest that, that's done quite a lot to destroy the evening socialising about, about the place. I don't entirely regret the loss of all that. There was a lot of kind of cynical, oh yes, we'll shout at each other in the chamber, but we'll, be, we'll drink together um, in the bar afterwards, that I, do, I, I think the, our, our constituents are rather left out of all that and yeah. didn't realise that Dennis Skinner is actually quite, quite, um, quite friendly um, behind the scenes as long as his constituents aren't looking. And when they are, he suddenly changes. Well, he was, he, I had a phone conversation with him about uh, a couple of months ago and he was not friendly to no, me. No, no, no. He I, doesn't I, do humour. No, 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 he <laughs> doesn't. No, no, no. It was quite a f- I had invited him to come on as a guest because I was a fan of him for years. And um, I'd heard from another MP that he was interested in coming on. So I'd rung his office and left my landline as a, as a contact number. So my landline rang and I answered it. I said, hello? And this voice went, who's that? Yeah. I said, it's Matt Ford, who's that? And he went, Dennis Skinner. I said, oh, Dennis, thank you so much for ringing me. Um, I'd really like to go, you do comedy, do you? I said, yeah, yeah. What do you do? I said, well, I'll do a few impressions sort of William Hague, Tony Blair. And he just went, you like those sort of people, do you? I said, well, that's not really the point, you know, I'll sort of do a few impressions. And then he went, I can sing, you know. I went, fine. Uh, and then, then he started to sing to me down the phone. And I thought, this is a, but it was, he, he named a singer that I'd never heard of. Like, I'm... I'm I'm 30, but I know music that was around before I was born, like Johnny Cash is one of my favourite artists, right? He went, I used to sing stuff by, and I can't remember the name of the person, but he said, uh, for argument's sake, it was something like Eva Rustgard. So I've never heard of Eva Rustgard. He went, you've never heard of Eva Rustgard? I said, no. And then he started to sing to me down the phone, and he, he sang this song, and it was about rationing, so it was some awful thing, like, we'll have lard tomorrow when the toast is in the van, or whatever it was. So it's awful, like, oh, it's a ridiculous song. And I thought, I'll try and build a bridge. And I said, well, there's a, there's a piano at the theatre, Dennis, perhaps. Mm. I, you know, I could play the piano, we could do a duet. And he just went, no. I thought, fine. <laughs> and then we, we ended up having a long argument because I support the war in Iraq and he didn't. And there was a bit where he went, Iraq's a bloody mess. I said, well, you know, I support the invasion. So I thought maybe he's testing me. Uh, and he just went, what? And I said, um, yeah, I support the war in Iraq. He went, you must be the only person in Britain who still supports that bloody war. Well, I said, you must sit next to at least 200 people who bloody voted for it, mate. You know, if I went, maybe it was just coincidence. Maybe you just got a phone list of all the people who supported the Iraq war and just happened to be working through it at the time that I'd approached him. I don't know. But it ended, in, um, it ended with him making a threat to me that was quite an odd threat. Because I said to him, oh, you know, I'd love to meet you and you know, talk about Iraq and stuff like this. And he went, you will never meet me. It's <laughs> <laughs> a bizarre, such a bizarre threat to make. Well, I'm glad you got on with he's, him. He's got him down to the team. <laughs> my constituency was right next door to, to Bolsover, to Clay Cross and Bolsover, his, his constituency. You, you've got the man absolutely down to a team. He was, uh, it was quite... Well, it and was you've quite got a... the menace as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, was, uh, he was phenomenal. But I'm, I'm always, I was disappointed in that because he'd been an idol of mine for so long. I'm always heartened, not just by friendships in politics, but particularly friendships across party lines. Mm. Like I love hearing that Nick Soames would ring up Alistair Campbell during the Iraq war or that Alan Clark and Campbell were friends or, um, you know, whenever you hear about it, I mean, who were the friends in, in other parties that you had? 
Um, David Alton in the Liberal Party was a, a, a friend of mine. I, I, I got on reasonably well with Tony Benn uh, after he came to Chesterfield. Uh, yes, quite well with Tony Benn, but although I do think he was completely, completely nuts. <laughs> I've always, always got on pretty well with with, um, with David David Steele. I, I joined the Liberal Party when I was at university, so I had a lot of sympathy for them. And some of the old Labour MPs, the old Buggins turn mining MPs, uh, Harry Barnes from North East yeah. Derbyshire, were they were they were lovely people, but I can't say they were particularly effective members of Parliament. But they were lovely to have a pint of beer with. The role of an MP has completely changed now, hasn't it? You know, it's, it's so intensely focused on constituency work and almost being a, a front office of the state and dealing yes. with child support and immigration cases and this sort of thing. I mean, is that something that you think needs to change and that MPs should have more time to deal with national issues? The trouble is that all the forces are impelling a Member of Parliament to, to become more and more of a glorified social worker in their own constituency. The whips love it. Um, you know, don't bother to come to London, that's absolutely fine. You, know, you just stay in your constituency. We'll tell you when you need to come and vote, but you know, keep out of the issues. Um, so the whips love it. Your local newspapers love it because you know, you're there at every dog hanging, you're opening an old people's <laughs> home. Or, um, you know, it's, it's you that's got this 30-mile-an-hour speed limit put, uh, put, put in, in an area where, where, where people want it. And, and the voters love it because they say, oh, he's a very, very, um, very active constituency MP. He works hard in his constituency. And the sort of member of parliament who is slightly contemptuous of constituency social work, slightly contemptuous of, of labouring away at the coal seam of politics, but will occasionally just march down to London, make a speech and vote against a three-line whip in their own party. That kind of member of parliament gets almost no, no support or admiration from anybody. So all the forces, I'm afraid, are turning MPs into social workers. It does seem odd sometimes. I've, I've campaigned for years with Labour and I've seen candidates of all parties. So many candidates I've worked with seem to hate the public. It seems to be a bizarre notion that you would want to represent people, but are so contemptuous, a sort of bizarre fear of... I worked for one MP who... We had a staff meeting and he said, well, what we need to do is reduce the amount of casework that we're doing because, you know, the fact is it's not our place to help people if they're having their gas cut off. This was a Labour MP and I couldn't mm. believe what I was hearing, that they're actually quite lazy and work. I mean, I'm a massive fan of politicians. I think the vast majority of them work very hard. But it does seem odd to me that it would attract people that actually don't want to deal with the public at all. Well, let me, you know, play devil's advocate here and say how a constituency MP sometimes sees it. You only ever see your constituents when they want something... Uh, uh, from you. You hold surgeries every, every week. Anyone can come and see you. And it would be so nice if someone would come and see you to say that they believed very strongly in something or to try and persuade you of a case. But no, they come in and you, you, can, virtually, you can virtually terminate or shortcut the conversation by saying, how much do you want? They, they either want money, uh, they, they, want a, they want a grant for something or other, they want a benefit that they think they've been denied, or they want planning permission for a porch that the local councillor uh, have, have turned down, or they want a, to jump a queue somewhere or other and they think that the MP can help them jump the queue. You, you, you learn a slightly cynical attitude towards the, the, the general public and towards your own constituents. And, of course, you, you help them and um, you're pleased to be in the paper for helping them. But after a while, you begin to think... Is anyone in the, in the public just altruistic? Does anyone in the public, uh, are, is anyone really just taken up with principle or are they all just out for what they can get for themselves? It is disillusioning. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Do you ever, or did you ever have any sort of hairy moments with the public? Because every politician I've ever worked for has either been threatened or attacked by the public. No, no, not particularly. Uh, I'm the kind of cuddly... Back then, MP, who on the whole got on well with all all his constituents. My 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 hairiest or two hairy moments were not really because the public were threatening. Threatening my very first surgery, uh, constituency surgery, was in Bakewell, and uh, my very first clients came in, and they were uh, Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Downing, and my agent. We used to have agents in those days. You, we could afford agents in those days. My Agent passed me a little note before they came in saying, parents of Stephen Downing are convicted of murdering um, a woman in the churchyard in, in Bakewell. And I read the note and in they came. They pulled out a suitcase, opened the suitcase and out poured all their son's blood-stained clothes. And they asked me to look at the clothes and tell them whether they were not right in their, their confidence that the way these clothes were bloodstained, was completely inconsistent with their son having been the murderer of, of the woman in question. And, of course, I, I'd know, I'd, I couldn't tell from <laughs> looking at bloodstained clothes what they show about the son's involvement in everything. And Stephen Downing, you may, some of you may remember, went away for 17 years. Um, I did take up the case. I took it up with Willie Whitelaw, um, the editor of the Matlock Mercury, took it up. I, to this day can only say that I think the conviction was unsafe. I don't know who murdered that woman, but the conviction was certainly unsafe. And after 17 years, we, we got him out. So that was a, pr- a pretty hairy moment for me. The second was a surgery in Bakewell, where I, I now think perhaps the young man and woman, he was about 18, she about 17, thought surgery was a medical surgery because <laughs> they, they came in. And um, he, he looked at her and she looked at him and he said, you say, and she said, you say. And eventually he said, we haven't got a home. We're living in a tent. And I said, oh, well, um, I, I, let, let, me, let me have a word with the district council. I'm very sorry to hear you're living in a tent. It's winter. Um, I'll do what I can. And he said, no, it isn't that. He said, we're, we're living in a tent because, uh, because we won't get enough points to get a council house um, and, until, he said, looking at her, until she's pregnant. And he said, looking at her again, she isn't getting pregnant. And, um, and, and we'd, we just want your advice on what we should do. And um, I, I said, well, you know, slightly pompously, I, I said, really, uh, really, I can't advise you to, to, um, to have a child just in order to get on a, 
a waiting list. It's not a good idea. And he interrupted me and said, no, 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 we've decided we want to. It's just that it's not happening and we just need some advice. And um, <laughs> she looked extremely embarrassed. <laughs> I wanted it. I mean, it would have been so cold in the tent in winter. That could have been the reason. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I sent them away to a clinic in Sheffield, and I'd, I'd love to know whether it worked out for them. In, in the end. Well, tonight, Matthew, surprise, surprise. <laughs> Imagine that. Um, we talked about Margaret Thatcher. Tony Blair uh, is a man that um, I'm sort of an ashamed uh, fan of. Uh, I found a quote. Uh, I found a quote from you, Matthew. It's fair to say that you're not, um, and I'll read this back to you. I'm, I'm sure you get this to you occasionally. Yeah, this is what Matthew wrote about Tony Blair. I believe that Tony Blair is an out-and-out rascal, terminally untrustworthy and close to being unhinged. <laughs> I said from the start there was something wrong in his head, and each passing year convinces me more strongly this man is a pathological confidence trickster. To the extent that he ever believes what he says, he is delusional. To the extent that he does not, he is an actor whose first invention himself has been his only interesting role. Mm. I mean, that is, a, that is a demolition of a man. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I suppose you explained it there, but did, did you always dislike him? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I um, I met him. There's uh, some of you will um, know of her, a woman called Mary Ann Seacott, who is a journalist and broadcaster, and she invited me to dinner with a, a young backbench Labour MP and his wife. Um, who she said was going to go places, and I went to dinner with her and her husband and the Blairs, and I took immediately to Cherie, and I took immediately against Tony, and I can't really say why I did. There was just just something fake about him to to me. Whereas Cherie, I know she's difficult. Um, I know all the things that people say about her, but there was something genuine about her, to, and, and to this day, I I really like Cherie, and I I I can't and don't try to disguise it. I think there is something fake. About him, I, well, that's it. I, it's just my instinct. Do you think it was? I mean, it, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a lot of people. <laughs> you see, you're a nice person. Well, you're a nice person, and he's very good at winding nice people round his little finger. Oh no! <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not going to say I feel sorry for him, but you know, I, uh, no. I think he gets a lot of criticism that isn't fair, and I think, you know, he was very good at acting the role of a politician, but in a, it, to some extent, all politicians are actors yes. a little bit, aren't they? Yes, so they are. Was there just something fundamentally worse about him, that he was just clearly fake all the time? I mean, some of the reformers he brought in were, were quite positive. Is there anything about his legacy that you think... Is there anything good you can find? Uh, I can find two good things about him. The first, you won't agree with, uh, which is that he was not without political instincts uh, or ideological instincts. I don't think he ever thought them through properly, developed them into anything that you could call an ideology or any sort of consistent train of thought. But he had his instincts, and they were Tory instincts, and they are Tory instincts. Um, second, The second good thing I would say about him, and I, this I really mean, my friend, my friend Paul, who's um, very much a Blair admirer like you and, and a, a sort of soft Labour supporter too, Paul said... I challenge you to write a column that's completely nice about Tony Blair, finding really good things to say about him, uh, which you think you can say sincerely. And I thought hard about it, and I thought that, and wrote that, he was someone who really got 
the age in which he lived, got the Britain in which he lived, got the tolerant country in which he lived, got the relaxed, um, humorous, unpompous Britain in, in which he lived. And with the wind of his times in his sails, I, I think he sailed in the right direction. And the party I belong to, the Conservative Party, didn't understand so much about end of 20th century Britain. Some of them still don't. Uh, didn't understand gay rights, didn't understand women's rights, didn't understand um, equality in the workplace. Uh, just missed, uh, missed so much of what had happened since the 1950s. Tony Blair got all that, he was part of all that, and in a really nice and genial and friendly and, I think, tolerant way. He is a genuinely tolerant uh, man, and he can rub along with, with anybody and get on with anybody, and I don't think he has a, a hateful bone in his body. So he, 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 he was a good, socially reforming Prime Minister in that way, and I think he was genuine and sincere about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> Very true. Very true. I mean, do you think David Cameron gets the country that he lives in now? Yeah, better, better, than, um, better than most of his predecessors. He's a, he is a bit of an heir to Blair in, in mm. that respect, but he does come from... Not that Tony Blair came, exactly came from a working-class background, but uh, David, David Cameron does come from a much more privileged uh, background and I think works quite hard to, to know and to understand the rest of Britain and, and wants to. Do you feel quite strange about the coalition, given your background, that you were Liberal and then Conservative? Because the year I grew up in, a lot of my friends were convinced that the Lib Dems were to the left of Labour. And I would say, no, 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 they're not. Historically, they're not, mm. in terms of the constituency that comprises the, the elite uh, of the leadership. They're not, you know, they're, they're ideologically close to the Tories. They have more in common. And actually, in terms of a lot of their policies, they're close to the Tories. It was probably the Iraq war that made people think they were to the left of Labour. So a lot of people were surprised they went into coalition. I wasn't so much. Were you? No, no, not, not at all. Uh, knowing the Liberal Party reasonably well, and now the, the Liberal Democrats, they, it, it, it is a, 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 itself a huge coalition, the Liberal Democrat Party, and there, there are people in it who could be quite comfortable in the Labour Party. Vince Cable was and, 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 and could be again. Um, I think that Tim Farron, their, their president, was and, and could be again. And there are people in it who are, are, are really just what, what I would call free market liberal mm. Tories who just don't like the kind of cultural and social baggage of the Conservative Party. And David Laws is probably one of those and Danny, Danny Alexander may be one of those. But I, I think you miss, you don't miss, but I think those people who think that the, the, that the Liberal Democrats are basically left-wing miss this about them. They have never been a party that believed in collective action that believed in collective, um, state-centred approaches to uh, solutions to, to problems. They've always been a very individualistic party, a party that believed in individual liberty. And that runs very strongly in the Liberal Party. But alongside it runs a sort of compassion, a sort of social compassion, which I think is closer to the Labour Party than with a lot of Tories. Because a lot of people listen to you and say, well, you're compassionate, you're socially liberal. Was there ever a point at which when the Labour Party clearly departed from state-based socialism, that perhaps in the new Labour era, putting aside your feelings about Tony Blair, you might have been tempted to join? I did think that, that new Labour was turning the, the Labour Party into uh, the sort of party that Conservatives could actually mm -hmm. support. That was the great fear of the Conservative Party. But I am tribal. I, I, I joined the Conservative Party and the Liberals at university. I stuck with the Conservative Party. I worked for the Conservative Research Department. They gave me, found me a seat in Parliament. 
uh, and now it's my tribe. And um, it's not a thing that I should take any pride in saying, but I, I just want them to win. I, I, even, I even want them to win when I'm not sure that they're, they're right. It's, it's, it's much more like football than it, than it is like philosophy, uh, much more like football than philosophy. And you want your, your, the team, the football team you support to win even when you're not sure they're the best team. And I'm afraid that's, that's true of me and the Tories. It's sort of true of me and Labour. And I, it, it's very much like football. Because I used to go and support Nottingham Forest because I thought the players were brilliant and I adored them. And that was the same reason I joined the Labour Party. Now I go to Forest because I think they're crap. And if I'm not there to tell them how shit they are... <laughs> I have a sort of similar relationship with Ed Miliband. That I sort of <laughs> feel I should scream and shout on the sidelines as much as possible. Do you ever talk to him, have you? Um, I met him once. Um, I met him a couple of times. The first time I met him, he was a minister. I think he was climate change secretary at yeah. the time. At the Labour Party conference. And I was a, an organiser for the Labour Party and was looking after some delegates. And I was, we were trying to introduce them to as many ministers as possible so that they had a nice time. And uh, Ed Miliband sort of came across with this gormous look on his face. Uh, and I said, oh, Ed, this is, um, I think it was Siobhan from Chesterfield. I went, oh, hi. Uh, and I said, <laughs> you, you know, you guys can sort of chat now. And he just sort of stood there, almost like gawping at her. And I was like, right, well, uh, Ed, you're, you're, you know, you're working on climate change. That's something that you're interested in. And I had to sort of mediate mm. this conversation because I don't know whether he was tired or what but he was incapable of holding a discussion with normal people mm. and just sort of stand there and let them bring and then of course there's, even though it was Ed Miliband slightly overall to meet an MP and to meet someone who was a minister and uh, that was the first time the second time I met him was at some Labour supporters dinner and he, he was alright but I never you know I was totally beguiled by Blair mm. probably for the same reasons that you hated him was that I sort of yeah. quite enjoyed the performance of it and Ed Miliband he sounds like Tony Blair with a cold is the sort of the biggest compliment I could give him, you know. <laughs> Blair sort of talked like that about the NHS and how it needs reform. And over the years, he didn't pick up his prescriptions and as the winters got longer and longer, he ended up sounding like that. Come on, no. <laughs> I don't know why, but I don't think I've ever actually heard Ed Miliband say, come on. <laughs> whenever I think about him, he's always saying, ah, oh, come on. Feels. <laughs> 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 Well, uh, let's, let's open up the, the floor. Has anyone got a question they would like to ask uh, Matthew? We've got a roving mic. I think we're going to have uh, someone come to you. So when the microphone does come to you, uh, please speak. Oh, there's two coming down the wing. So please do speak. Uh, wait for the microphone to come to you. Just set us your name um, because we're, we're podcasting the show as well. If I can ask you to keep your questions relatively short and the answers relatively short as well, Matthew, if that's OK, yeah. we'll try and get around as many people <clears> as possible. So the gentleman down here in the sky blue shirt, if that's OK. Uh, Donald Davidson, about the whole point of Rupert Murdoch's influence. <clears throat> I think every single uh, paper, news, Murdoch newspaper in the world supports the Iraq war. I'm, I'm just fascinated the fact, of course, that you were able to be a staunch opponent. And I remember thinking, being surprised, that you're, like a, you're a bit like a Soviet dissident in, in the midst of all these times newspapers, because they're all completely 100% for the Iraq war. And, and there you are. I, I, so I was just interested in your comments and how you were able to, to get away with it, so to speak. Because uh, you, you, I, well, I, you weren't sacked. <laughs> it would be nice to say that I, I think the, the, the proprietorship of the, the paper just wants a thousand flowers to bloom. But I think that the truth probably is that uh, the proprietor and the editor didn't want the paper to look as though it only uh, has only one point of view and only one brand of columnist. And so I was useful to the paper as, as, as being someone to demonstrate that you do get different voices in the Times. Um, that's sometimes the reason why 
one is asked on to the BBC as a Tory or asked to, asked to write a column against the Iraq war in an Iraq war supporting paper. I've never, never, ever had any pressure from Rupert Murdoch or, or the, the proprietorship or the editor of the paper. The only example I ever had was when I wrote a column about male stripping. Um, there's a pub round the corner from me which has Mr Amateur Strip Night, and I wrote about the <laughs> essential difference between male stripping and female stripping. Female stripping, the whole thing is a performance from the, the moment um, the, 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 the blouse is, is moved slightly from the collar. For men... No one's interested until he's in his underpants, and then everyone starts shouting, "Get him off!" <laughs> and and, uh, and uh, my editor called me and said, "Lovely column, uh, but Mr. Murdoch is in town this week. He really doesn't like that kind of thing. Could we run it next week rather than this week?" That's the only censorship <laughs> I ever had. <laughs> okay, well, if we just take the fellow next to you, and then it's. I'm going to be more brief. I promise. We'll take the gentleman next door, just so that we're not running up and down the aisles. Your description of electioneering sounded like a lifetime ago to me. Um, At the next election, fewer and fewer people are going to be voting and governments are going to be got in on a a phenomenally small share of the vote. How are we going to get people enticed into politics again? Yeah, it won't be phenomenally small, but it just keeps going down. Every, Every election, it's a bit less than before. I don't know how we get people involved in politics. There's a hugely anti-politics mood Mm. at the moment, a feeling that politicians are all on one side and the public are all on the other. And I'm completely at a loss to know how you deal with it. I can't answer your question. Okay, the the lady at the back, the white top. Thanks very much. Uh, Kate from Brighton. Um, Do you really miss the demise of real political satire? I'm old enough to remember um, spitting image, and now I think a lot of the media is very bland um, in terms of critiquing political excesses. Um, And have you got comments on that as journalists? Thank you. Uh, Radio. Radio is still pretty good. Uh, For instance, the news quiz on BBC Radio 4, it's mostly left-wing comedy but it's it's pr- pretty good stuff and it's it's pretty vicious you're quite right that nothing has ever really replaced spitting image though when you watch spitting images now they don't they don't seem quite so funny as they <laughs> seemed at the time i don't know um, you're you're a pretty good satirist yourself oh cheers mate um it's <laughs> <laughs> the thick of it though do, do you like the thick of it yeah, absolutely I mean, that's, that's as aggressive as it gets i think isn't it yeah. and as, as unforgiving as it gets yes yeah, the, the, the thick of it, I, I think, is so much closer to real politics than Yes Minister ever was. I think you're right. Uh, we'll take the back, bloke at the back in the uh, turquoise shirt. <coughs> Hi, I'm, I'm John, I uh, live in London, and I just want to ask you if you were still friendly with Geoffrey Archer. I remember you describing him at the time when he went to prison as he was like a Toad of Toad Hall-style <laughs> character who couldn't keep out of trouble and, you know, he wasn't malicious in any way. So I wondered if you were still in touch with him and... What's your thoughts on him now? I haven't seen him for a very long time, but I did get a very nice note from him after writing perhaps the only nice thing that was said about him in the media for, for weeks and weeks. Uh, I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a rascal. Uh, he's always been a rascal, but there is, there is a nice side to, to Geoffrey Archer. and he, He's never a, ma- a man who's never used his politics to inculcate hatred against any, anybody or any cause or... Or any group. He just loves attention. He loves applause. He loves doing the raffle at Conservative Party conferences. He loves to be somebody. He loves to see Prime Ministers. And there is, as I say, like Toad of Toad Hall, something lovable about that. I've always been a fan of Archie. You know, I read all his books. Uh, 
His prison diaries, I don't know if you've read those, no, are no. phenomenal, particularly uh, section number one where he's at Belmarsh. It's a sort of bizarre image of this conservative lord on the same wing as paedophiles and rapists and, and murderers. And he sort of... It goes from the... Just the most bizarre details about his day. So it's kept as a diary. So it's a 5.05am, uh, uh, awoken by uh, loud gangster rap music from D-Wing. And then he, he will then recite the lyrics. And I think one of them was, Gunshot to the head, pussy boy gets dead. Gunshot to the head, pussy boy gets dead. 5.15, had a lollipop. Delicious. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely legend. So I've always been quite a fan of him. OK? Um, the gentleman there in the sky blue shirt. I was interested in your thought about Tony Blair not being authentic, because in, in business world, the buzzword now is authentic leadership. Uh, and, it, and it worries me a little bit on the trend of special advisors and uh, career politicians. And, and, you know, will Matthew ever have a show in 20 years' time because it'll just be full of, you know, Oxbridge graduates who've never lived in the real world? What's the question? <laughs> the question is, do you share my fear that the special advisors are taking over politics and therefore we have no characters in the future? Um, I, special advisors are a symptom rather than, uh, than a cause. Uh, and uh, politicians do need uh, special advisors. Politicians do need somebody in there among the civil service but who, who are on their side. Uh, I think... More of the root cause of, of the, as you say, the colourlessness of politics is, is the way that politics now becomes a profession where you go in, perhaps you'll be a special advisor, perhaps you'll be a, a, a party hack of some kind and, and then you move up a little and then finally you're a candidate and you end up having never done anything uh, outside politics in, in your life. The, the trouble is that, that it, that's now become the fashionable thing to say. You know, They're, they're not in the real world anymore, they're... they're, they're that the, the, the Westminster bubble is just composed of people climbing up a, a bureaucratic political ladder. We need people engaged with the world outside. Then you get politicians who do have jobs outside and people say, oh, isn't politics a full-time job? You know, why are they earning an income from outside? So the old politics, where people did keep links with the outside, came in and out of business and the real world, back into politics we, we decided it was unacceptable, and now we don't like the alternative. But there is a, there's a middle way, isn't there, which is to have a life first and then not have a second job as an MP. And yes. It does, I, I sort of have sympathy with your argument and yours, uh, uh, particularly someone who used to work for a political party. I think that there is... Peter Oborn's book, uh, Triumph for the Political Class, I don't know if you read that, is, is a phenomenal book about yeah. charting this new trajectory from special advisor to minister in a relatively short space of time. And I do share concerns about that, but equally, I don't think the answer is to allow second jobs. I mean, that, No, I don't. I don't. But I, I, perhaps the answer might be uh, not to think that someone who's 50 or 60 uh, is, is, is too old to, to go into politics. Well, perhaps we should have more people mm. who've done really big things in their life and after retiring from the, the army or, uh, or, or business or, or the pit, except there aren't any pits any longer, the, <laughs> the quarry, um, decide to go into politics. OK, let's try and take a question on this other The gentleman there, yeah. Public will more likely fall for a big lie as a small one. So I wondered if 
you felt that although the delivery methods had changed, whether anything really has changed with the media and politicians working together in the last, say, 100 years? No, no, I don't think anything has, has changed. I, I, as I say, I'm fresh from reading this book on, on Disraeli, and Disraeli certainly leave, uh, believed in the, in, in the big lie. Politicians always have, and I, I, I hate to, um, to give any quarter at all to Matt, but I, I think Tony Blair was convinced... Uh, that that, um, that 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 the Iraqis did have weapons of mass destruction. That Saddam Hussein um, was bent on on some kind of murderous mission. I think he convinced himself. So I, I don't think it was a lie in the sense of he thought ho ho ho, Saddam Hussein is actually entirely harmless, but I'm going to pretend that he's dangerous. I think he thought Saddam Hussein is dangerous. We haven't got convincing evidence we could show people, so let's just sex up the evidence a bit. OK. Uh, yes, the gentleman here. Matthew mentioned the word principled. Uh, would I be naive in thinking that politicians perhaps could sit down one day and say, we intend to build the good society? Do you, do you think that's... Do you just see politics as the, as the way it goes on and that... It, that is it, and nothing can change. Or, or is it possible that we could see a, a different set of politicians who really do believe in building a good society? Matt, if I may say, you know, you're a great fan of Tony Blair. Do you not think of the terrible things that have happened because of his actions, really dreadful things where, where foreigners have been slaughtered, not so many... English or British white people, but masses of foreign people. You know, we have got to start thinking in a different, more humane way. Well, and I mean, as long as you go on saying I'm a great fan mm. of Tony Blair, our politics is going to get nowhere. Well, I think to be honest, every politician thinks they're creating a good society. Yeah. It's just that people differ on what a good society is. So Tony Blair brought in, as Matthew says, rights for gay people, rights for women, rights for part-time workers. Arguably, they were part of a good society. If you want to talk about foreigners getting killed, he saved lives in Kosovo, he saved lives in Sierra Leone. And if you're telling me that part of an ethical foreign policy is to rule out military intervention where despots are allowed to do whatever they want to their own people, I don't think that's what I'm a good society is. I'm telling you to is. read such work. You've said you, you, you have said you've read uh, quite a few books, but how about reading Rousseau and John Rawls? I've read Rousseau, on the, the Social society. Contract. It's a great book. We don't have that at the moment. You want to do a bit more reading with respect. I'll go to my local library if the Tories have kept it open. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Is there anything you'd like to add to that, Matthew? Uh, no, I, I, completely, <laughs> I completely agree with Matt. Um, the, the, the problem is not a shortage of politicians who want to build a good society. The, the problem is finding agreement about what that society would be. And there's genuine, principled disagreement between people. Okay, we've got three minutes left, so I'm keen to get around as many people as possible. We can ask some one-sentence questions and one-sentence answers. The lady down here. Shanta from Hartford. Um, I'm interested in your views, Matthew, around how much an MP should earn and whether you are in favour of the latest recommendations. I would double their salaries and abolish all their expenses. Um, and I would make sure that the overall package costs the taxpayer as much as or less than the overall package costs at the moment. I would reduce the number of members of Parliament at the same time. But I think that while government has a freeze on public sector pay, 
uh, MPs have got to respect it. So any changes that are made must wait until that freeze is unfrozen. Okay, the gentleman at the back with the red hair. Hello there. Hey up. Is this on? Um, you expressed earlier dislike for collectivist socialism, but I wonder what your thoughts would be on more individual, individual forms of socialism as expressed by the cooperative party and movement. I, 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 admire, I admire the cooperative party movement. I, I, I admire voluntarism um, in every way, and I, I could argue that the cooperative movement is uh, just an early expression of David Cameron's big society in, in lots of ways. <laughs> but, but, what I don't like is, is, is coercion. I've always ha- hated mobs. I've always be- hated being told um, what my union is doing. When I was a student, I, I joined the Cambridge Students' Union and uh, they told me I was not to take an account out at Barclays. So I took an account out at <laughs> Barclays simply because I will not be told by anybody what I should do. The gentleman at the back. Um, you've spoken a lot about the spin that's applied from political parties and the media to the public. Uh, what about the spin that's applied from large corporate organisations to politicians? So lobbying, obviously, in the news this weekend. Should we regulate or ban the lobbying industry? I, I agree with David Cameron's first remark on this, which he made some time ago, which was that lobbying is, is the next big scandal. I, uh, lobbying either purchases influence or it doesn't. Um, If it does purchase influence, then I don't think it's right that those who can lobby or afford to hire lobbyists get an influence that those who can't don't. And if it doesn't purchase influence, then the clients of lobbyists are are being taken for a ride by the the lobbyists. (laughs) Uh, I don't like it. (laughs) Okay, uh, any more? Just, uh, okay, the chap at the back, and then I'll come to you, mate. Uh, Simon from London. Do you think if Rupert Murdoch had not existed, the country would be worse for it? <laughs> yes. Yes, definitely. Well, we, we wouldn't have a newspaper industry. It would, have, uh, it would have gone to the wall. It was going to the wall. New, Rupert Murdoch saved the British press. OK, and the gentleman in the check shirt. Final question. Um, Adam from Edinburgh. Matt, see you next month. Cheers, um, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, that sounded like a bit like a threat. <laughs> <laughs> I will. <laughs> I can't do the bolsover bit. <laughs> Matthew, you said at the beginning uh, you, part of your job is to float ideas. Uh, what success do you have with getting those ideas to your own tribe or to others uh, amongst the power, I guess? Very little. <laughs> Very little. Um, I've, the older I've got and the more column writing I've done, the more I've, I've um, come down to a, a Marxist view of historiography, um, which is that th- there are great forces underneath the surface, economic and cultural forces, great currents, and a lot of what appears on the surface are, are really just a consequence of those underlying Currents. And if an idea's time has come, then the columnists who hat, hitch their, their star onto that idea will find themselves riding high, but actually they'll be being carried by the idea rather than carry the idea. I, I have tried within the Conservative Party on gay rights to, to be, if not an example myself, at least to be a voice of someone who was at the same time a Conservative and gay. And I have found that Understand an understanding of that slowly gaining hold within the 
Conservative Party, and there are a lot of others besides me who've who've helped with that. But perhaps I did a little bit, a little bit of good in that way, but not not very much. No. Well, that brings us to the end, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Before we before we thank Matthew for joining us, uh, I saw the exhibition earlier. Propaganda, it's phenomenal. I recommend. It. I will definitely come back and see it myself. I fully recommend that people who have an interest in this sort of subject matter go and see it. Uh, we should also thank uh, everyone at the British Library who's hosted us today. It's been a real pleasure to bring the show here. It's been phenomenal, and uh, I can't thank them enough and the people at Avalon who helped produce the show as well. I've been Matt Ford, but ladies and gentlemen, please show your appreciation for the wonderful Matthew Paris. Well, there you go, Matthew Paris. What an absolute gentleman, and it was a pleasure to spend an hour in his company, and I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast as, as much as I enjoyed sitting next to him on that stage and, and listening to his wonderful answers. A man of genuine dignity. Um, and likability, and in an era where it's so easy to categorise all politicians, but particularly conservatives, as being cold-hearted um, and compassionless individuals, Matthew Paris really is uh, an antidote to that argument. A top, top bloke, um, and someone who, you know, over the years, obviously, I've had genuine admiration for. So when you get to meet someone like that and sit next to them and hear their story and hear their opinions. Um, can't fail to enjoy it. Now we're back at the St James's Theatre. The new season is about to start. Uh, it's in a couple of weeks. The 25th of September is the next show, Wednesday the 25th. The guest for that is about to be announced. I'm just tying a particular individual down. And once that is done, figuratively speaking, um, the uh, announcement will be made. On the 23rd of October, which is the show after that, I've got Tom Watson, who recently resigned as Labour's general election coordinator after what happened in Falkirk. Since then, the Labour Party has announced that Unite has no case to answer over the selection procedures in Falkirk. So it'll be fascinating to hear what uh, Tom has to say about that and, of course, about some of the other moments in his... Uh, had such a brief career, very colourful. Um, so that one is a must. Uh, we've got shows, of course, as well in November and a Christmas special in December. So announcements on those guests, uh, as always, will be made on Twitter and uh, through the podcast and through the usual channels. So if you'd like uh, tickets, just go to my website, mattford.com, and you'll be able to you know, get tickets for the uh, St. James's Theatre. You can also go through theirs, www.stjamestheatre.co.uk. And I hope to see you down there. Thanks to everyone who came to see my Edinburgh show. Um, I had a wonderful time in August. And thanks to everyone who enjoys the podcast. And if you do enjoy it, please do share it, tweet it, and uh, you know, tell everyone. And if you don't like it, well, probably best just to keep quiet. All right, I uh, hope to see you soon. Cheers, bye.